Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we are here with Cheryl Kababa, uh, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Substantial and also the author of Closing the Loop, Systems Thinking for Designers. Uh, really excited to have you here and dig into this really big, meaty topic of systems thinking. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, absolutely. Really happy to be here. Got Jay here, too. Yeah, this feels like a topic or um, a category that people like to talk about. Like I hear everyone mention systems thinking, but I'm always curious how well people actually understand it or apply it in their work. So I'm excited to dig in. Yeah. Yeah. Systems thinking. It's something I think I think I enjoy systems thinking. I, I, I think about um, like ecosystems, systems, ecosystems, uh, about how things exist in a context and not in a vacuum. But I don't, I don't know. I'm sure you're going to enlighten us a lot on what, what systems thinking is and how it applies to designers and maybe also what it isn't. Sometimes it's easy or to understand things by, by what they aren't. So uh, let's, let's dig into it. Yeah. Great. Well, first of all, I guess, what, what made you write this book? Why, why do you enjoy thinking about systems thinking? Yeah. So um, I actually hadn't really integrated systems thinking into my work um, until about uh, six or seven years ago. And one thing that I kind of found as a designer is that I was starting to feel a little bit like the methods that we use are had some shortcomings in terms of like the things that we were being tasked to think about, especially because if you work, for example, in user experience design or digital design, a lot of the things we're designing are just kind of like at enormous scale um, and in a way and has like a user base that we can't, we, we don't really, it doesn't seem like our tools for designing things kind of like respond to that. Um, and the methods that I'm thinking about at core are just what we understand is um, design thinking or user-centered design, oftentimes we're kind of designing with like a single user in mind and thinking about the benefits of use of a product like in the moment and thinking about how maybe they walk through an experience um, for the most part. And then that sort of leaves out these other questions we might have, like who our other stakeholders are. Um, what happens sort of like contextually beyond that experience? Um, and also like, who are the variety of potential end users as well as like end beneficiaries, people who might be affected by our products, but maybe aren't even users of the products that we're working on. Um, all of these felt like gaps in thinking. And so I started like kind of delving into systems thinking methodology to kind of better understand, like, are there ways that I could integrate this in my practice? And the reason that I decided to write a book about it is because I'm a designer who has already has like a job. I'm a design strategist and researcher, um, right? But my background is in product design. And I already have a job as a designer, right? I already have like processes, methods. I fit in a certain a point in the design and development process, especially for things like software. Um, and I occupy a certain place within the organization. And so looking at systems thinking methods, it felt like these ideas are great. Um, how exactly do I integrate this into my practice? Like 
my goal is not to suddenly become a systems thinking methodology practitioner and leave my job as a designer behind. I need to figure out a way to kind of like integrate it into my practice in a way that is like actually actionable and accessible. And so I felt like there was a little bit of a gap in the literature around this intersection of kind of like design and design thinking and systems thinking. And I couldn't find it like resources myself on like how these things might intersect. And so, um, yeah, I thought making a book, the writing a book that is, that feels kind of accessible and actionable and to designers, I think is something that, um, felt like worth doing. Nice. That's awesome. Do you have any like examples you can recall of like when you, when you were a designer, like before and after kind of exploring systems thinking of like, I used to approach something this way and then I kind of shifted my approach, like just something maybe tangible for folks to kind of help hook onto it. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of thinking like I've worked on everything from like, I don't know, uh, early, <laughs> early activity monitors. I was, I worked at Philips design for a while and worked on an activity monitor, um, before the Fitbit came out. I remember the day the Fitbit came out and I was like, our team was kind of like, Whoa, like, Oh, this is our competition. And that product that I was working on had this kind of like complex system of like real life coaches and things like that. And, but it sort of felt like the area in which I was tasked to think was really about the interface, like just like the interface of like when you plug this thing into your machine and you kind of like look at your data, that was what I was kind of like working on. And not to say that that's not complex, but there was this entire system of the business model of this um, this particular device and also yeah, how it was sold, how it was marketed, um, who they expected the audience to be. And I don't think I was really like privy to kind of like the decisions that that like whatever factored into those decisions. And so I was working on this narrow space, but questions would keep coming up for me like, okay, so I'm designing this interaction between like a coach and like this user but i don't even really know like what the parameters are around like who this coach is and um how they're kind of connected to this product and you can kind of like learn these things piecemeal but it felt like there was some sort of like missing analysis of like what is feeding into where this product sits and what's the context in this almost in its entirety in which it sits um and so it felt like a fairly like you know and and I think this is like my experience as a product designer in general it felt a little bit like dissatisfying in that I was like tasked with this like narrow slice where my lane was kind of like working in this doing the screeny thing and the screeny thing had so much like impact beyond like what I was doing as well as like inputs um into what I was doing that I wasn't like fully aware of um so I think that's one of the reasons I became a design strategist is because like I was kind of like a disgruntled um, product designer. <laughs> and so it felt like getting into like going upstream a little bit in terms of decisions um, was a sort of like more satisfying move for me. Um, and then I think ostensibly when uh, when I really started like 
using system more systems thinking analysis was when I was working on things like um, I don't know healthcare kind of like healthcare products and services. Um, you know, for example, I worked on a robotic surgery project um, where they were kind of like thinking about the ecosystem. And I think like the thinking about those ecosystems are like the entry point to systems thinking methodology. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's many instances in which designers like are sort of put in the same position, especially if you're in a big organization or you're working on a big like enterprise product or something, you might be tasked with like this like narrow slice, but with very little understanding of what surrounds it. Yeah, interesting. As you were talking about this, I started to think a lot about um, sort of ethnography, right? Uh, a research method, which uh, takes, you know, you talk about the interaction of the the wearable device, right? And it's like, your, your job is to research the user and the device and their interaction between it. But of course, the device and the person live in an environment with context, with things happening around them to say nothing of the business in which the device is being developed. This has me thinking about ethnography as a method to get at some of this other stuff. Is that a, a method that can maybe bridge some of this gap between traditional UX methods and systems thinking or, or where does that sit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like in my job as like a, um, a design researcher, I, I do a lot of, I, I, I guess I wouldn't call it like exactly ethnography, but ethnography kind of inspired work, whereas it's like you're um, trying to understand the context in which the experience of use is going to sit. Um, so, you know, quite different from UX research where, yeah, you're like looking directly at the inter intersection between like the device and, you know, the human using it. Um, and it's funny because like, I kind of think like that is a really good, that intersects really well with systems thinking is like framing your mindset around like how best to understand context and not just kind of like that direct benefit of use. Um, yeah, understanding people's experiences before they even like have any interaction with like a specific product or service is essential in, in essentially good design thinking. Um, I think what where the gap is for a lot of like how this is typically implemented in design research is that um, I I would feel that there was this missing sort of element of like getting at really broadly who your users are and those who might be affected by like your eventual design decisions. So, you know, for example, I work a lot in education and um, I, the work that I, that we do at Substantial is oriented around equity center design. And so we're specifically thinking about sort of the populations who have been marginalized um, within like the design decision-making process, um, you know, traditionally and typically. So, you know, for example, we kind of think about, um, you know, how Black and Latino students in the U.S. like experience uh, certain like education technology products or like they're we try to understand like their experiences within the system and engage them in co-design and 
I think like that's an extension of systems thinking is kind of like engaging with this idea of more broadly, like who the people who might be affected by the things you're designing might be like the categories they fall in and like how you can kind of design better design with outcomes in mind, like with sort of outcomes that are oriented around equity. And I think, um, yeah, like there's a lot that's, I think the really nice intersection of systems thinking and design thinking is that designers are orienting towards that humanistic approach. I think an issue with systems thinking methodology, like as it stood like over the years is like it, that it feels very abstract, that it feels very like non-human, that it kind of reduces like people to forces that interact with each other. Um, and I think a designer superpower is that we do take this approach that is really human centered, that we're are oriented around humans, that is like intended to be empathy driven. And you can use that as a starting point. I think it's just like thinking more broadly about who your stakeholders are kind of in terms of the entirety of the system, rather than just like focusing on a really narrow slice of who the stakeholders are, which is like maybe like your end user and maybe like the decision makers within your organization. Um, so yeah, I, I do think like sort of that approach that um, ethnographic um, research inspired approach is like really, really useful, like within the sort of systems thinking process specifically for designers. And I wrote about it in the, in the book. I think there was a moment where I'm like, am I just writing about design research here? Like, should I be doing this? And um, I was almost like, oh yeah, the audience here should have familiarity with some of what I'm writing up about foundation. Like you have to do foundational research. You have to do foundational research. You have to do generative research. But I think a lot of people actually don't necessarily do that to the extent that we should be, even when it comes to just design thinking. So I made sure to include it because I do think there is this extension for me in terms of like taking that approach of like really understanding context foundationally before like going into any sort of like problem solving. Yeah. Is there um, an aspect of this that is like contextual at all? Like, so if I'm a designer or researcher, and we're doing like maybe a narrow thing. Like we got some very targeted feedback that this menu's a little confusing and we're just gonna like redesign it minorly to clear up, clear that up. Like can maybe a situation like that or something in that spirit maybe is like, you don't need to think about the system as much. Like you can kind of zoom in and it's it maybe okay. Whereas we're trying to stand up a new product offering or a new suite of functionality. And we really need to think about like, how does this fit into our business model? How does this fit into the user experience with the suite of products? Like. So are there areas like as you're doing research or design that you like dial this up and down depending on the type of work you're doing or um, how do you, how would you th uh, encourage people to think about that part of it? Yeah, I mean, I do think like there is the kind of problem solving that is just there's is problem solving to like figure out like how something can just like work better and you know exactly like what you're trying to achieve there. Um, and yeah, maybe that doesn't require you creating like a whole, you know, mapping exercise of like causal loop diagrams and things like that. Um, and yeah, that's totally fine. I mean, I think the, I think there is kind of like a difference between, I talk a little bit about 
hard systems um, methodology and soft systems methodology. And the way I like to describe that is that, you know, Karl Popper, the philosopher, he had this like sort of metaphor um, for types of problems. And he described some things as cloud problems and some things as clock problems. And I think a lot of like engineering um, kind of building things uh, kind of problems fall into the clock problems category. Like you're just trying to make, you're trying to make a clock and you're trying to figure out how to make it work and for it to kind of like tell time with precision. It's very directive. You know exactly like what you're trying to do. And then there are cloud problems. So these are more ambiguous. Um, there's a sense of multi-finality, which is like a term in system thinking that describes like there are many, many different ways to solve a problem. Um, and it could go in many different directions. And also you might not have like even a great deal of clarity on what the problem itself is. Um, I think a good intersection or a good description of like what you might think of as cloud problems is like wicked problems. So like Horace Ritter in the 1970s coined that to describe um, problems that are so complex that there's not any singular way of solving them. Um, and so, yeah, I think like the cloud problem space is really good for systems thinking. Um, I think the clock problem space, not so much. Like that's very like directional already when you kind of like know exactly what you're going to be doing. I think the issue lies in that we oftentimes assign cloud actual like cloud problems or cloud problem solving to the clock space and so that's that's where we kind of like run into trouble like if you're working on like a social media platform or something like that um you know you're you're thinking about it as clock problems but because there's like this human social collective kind of behavioral aspect to it it then becomes a a cloud problem um, and we need to like be able to acknowledge that through sort of like a shift in our tools and analysis yeah to, to build off that have you found ways for designers or researchers to like identify what they might be working on like how do you know which one's which I'd, I'd imagine if you're a builder and like you're in a design role to your point you kind of see a lot of things probably as clock problems because of the nature of your work and so are there good like rules of thumb or, or things you've done in your career to help you identify like um, what you're working on yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good question because like I don't think I have like a formula or anything like that. But the way I kind of describe like system just like the concepts of systems thinking is there's like three three different um components. So it's like thinking about things how things are interconnected, thinking about causality and thinking about wholeness. So if you're working on something that seems like super interconnected with other things and you don't have like a lot of, I guess, like visibility into what those other things are, you should, you probably should work to make those interconnections visible, like to yourself as a practitioner, to your organization, because I think that'll be required in order to be able to um, be successful in terms of like, the product or service that you're designing. I think all, there's also causality. So 
oftentimes we just kind of think about like, okay, we're designing and creating this thing. And then this is how somebody's going to experience it. And that's kind of like all we're interested in. But I think one of the things that I focused more readily on over the past few years um, is just how do you connect that to like broader outcomes, like either like societal outcomes or, you know, um, outcomes that happen like beyond just like the direct benefit of use. Um, and then lastly, there's wholeness. So I think just kind of thinking about that context in which your product or service sits, like, is there, I don't know, are, are there things that in that regard you need to make visible as well? Like, you know, for example, just working, um, often with like ed tech developers, um, I think they're oftentimes thinking about like a specific use case, like a student will use this um, in the context of like math class or something like that. And they're not really like, they don't, they're not necessarily like aware of things like how are those students assessed in math? Like what kinds of diversity of environments is this product even going to be used in? What kind of like connectivity do different like school systems have? Um, who are the buyers like in this particular like school district? Um, what kinds of schools are you kind of like thinking about integrating this within? What other, what kind of learning management system is this particular school district using? Um, and what's the demographics of students who are kind of like in these environments? What kinds of resources do they have? And like, I think, I mean, they're designing a clock, but like, I think just having visibility or alignment on what is like the cloud that surrounds that clock, I guess, um, would be beneficial in that then you can kind of make decisions about your product that could result. I mean, honestly, like it could result in new ideas. You could end up doing like it can be a, a driver of innovation. Um, it can also be like a problem solver before you go ahead and kind of like release this this product out into the world. So I think there's like, I don't know, kind of like different ways that you can articulate systems within your work um, as well as like use your understanding of the system to acknowledge where like additional problem solving needs to happen. Cheryl, I imagine a potential risk or concern with systems thinking as contrasted with design thinking or, you know, evaluative methods, clock making methods, um, is this sounds like big and chaos and we're like diverging, right? I'm imagining chalkboards with webs and lots of interconnecting drawings and just, you know, chaos, right? Because everything's connected and it's whole and it's causal and right. How, what are the tools or methods or ways in which can sort of expand, right? But then ultimately converge and get to, to decisions, right? Get to things moving forward. Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question because I think that that aligns with a lot of the fears that I hear about trying to do like integrate systems thinking into your project work is like my work is already so directional. Like I am sitting in this kind of lane and I don't 
I don't even know if I have like the time or resources, right, to be able to like engage in this. It doesn't have to be big. Like one of the objectives I had in like writing the books, like I want there to be like some methods in here that a design practitioner can just like read and then like take into like tomorrow's workshop because I don't think it has to be like a super involved. You don't have to spend like three months creating like a giant causal loop diagram that gets shopped around to like a whole bunch of stakeholders and the rest of your organization or anything like that. I actually don't even think that's an effective way of communicating. Like I've created those in the past. Nobody, I'm going to say right now, like nobody reads them. Like nobody looks at them unless you've created some sort of executive summary of like what you've done. And they're great forms of analysis. Like, and, but you know, they're not good for like, you know, funneling into decision making necessarily. I think where the, those kinds of methods are worthwhile, let's say like you want to like understand causal loops, like within the system in which your problem space lies. Um, the space in which you're doing this work is with a group of multidisciplinary stakeholders like you as a designer are not just like going off and doing this thing and then presenting it back to others like you're creating this it's an alignment exercise ultimately it's a communication tool so like you might be thinking about um okay like an example i had was like how you know how do we understand how multilingual learners um in middle school experience math um I'm not just like going off as a designer and doing some secondary research or even just like interviews with students or what have you. Like I'm actually engaging with like different stakeholders within the system, whether it's like uh, school or district administrators, um, academic experts like in the space, like researchers who have a good understanding of the system in the space. And then, yeah, also engaging like lived experts, like students and teachers who are, you know, actually like maybe are most affected by the decision making within that space, but usually have like the least decision making power. Um, and this kind of like mix of stakeholders, including like the organizational stakeholders that I'm working with, um, are a really good group to in order to determine like how to create a representation of the system whether you're creating a causal loop diagram um i think another sort of framework that i use really often in my own work is the iceberg diagram so kind of understanding um what's on the surface what are the things that we're seeing in terms of this particular problem space and then what beneath that are the patterns of behavior what are the infra what is the infrastructure kind of below that and then finally like what are the mental models so like really understanding root cause and i think developing that understanding you've actually then created a space in which you can use the entirety of that for ideation like you can use the entirety of that to kind of think about where interventions can happen and it doesn't just have to be at the surface level um so you might be thinking about like, I don't know, uh, tutoring supplements for the students that I was referring to earlier, but actually there's an opportunity for professional development for teachers, right? And like these things emerge as you kind of get at root cause and you 
better understand like these interconnections within the system. Um, so I think that's like, it's a good way to kind of like get start, like just start doing it in workshops, right? Like I think workshops are probably like, it frees you from thinking about this as like some sort of independent project that you're running. Yeah. So instead of just the right back to the the wearable and the person, we have some sort of diagram of the context, the environment, the ecosystem in which these things exist. And then when we want to iterate on that product, on that experience, we kind of know what the range of options are. And depending on the nature of the problem or the opportunity, where in this diagram we might want to plug into that might be most effective. You mentioned the iceberg. Are there some other kind of key sort of diagrams or exercises that are accessible to folks? Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of like understanding the status quo, like what's happening today that you might want to intervene in, um, the iceberg diagram is really good. I think also um, the Ishikawa or fishbone diagram is really good. Um, And these are not, I think like probably formal like systems thinking methodologists would just like poo poo these, like they'd be like, those are not like really. (laughs) And I think, for me, I'm just like, I think systems thinking is a mindset. Like these get at kind of like those other contextual areas that we've been talking about and like use the tool that gets you to where you need to go. Like the tool is not the thing in and of itself. I mean, I think that's oftentimes the mistake that designers make about like systems thinking is they think I need to do a causal loop diagram and then like we'll figure out where the interventions go. And then we might even like model how those causal loops change. And I'm like, the map is not the thing. Like you start obsessing about that map. I don't even know, like you can actually like as a designer, like use your, your best skills to like make change then. So I think about it as a way of like building alignment. And then it's like, okay, here are the potential points of intervention. And I talk a little bit about like, well, then how do you envision what you're changing? Um, And like, I really like, I work a lot with philanthropies and like, um, you know, there's a lot in sort of like the global development space that is oriented around creating a theory of change. And I included like some theory of change frameworks in the book because like these have worked really well for just like identifying like how you can actually make something happen like what are the inputs activities and outputs that you need to do in order and then it always connects to like what are the outcomes you're looking to achieve and then what is the impact you're trying to achieve on a broader scale so if you're working on malaria vaccines then there are certain things you have to do those are the inputs activities and outputs and then the outcomes are the things that you might measure like how many people um, in a certain population actually get the vaccine. And then the impact is like sort of that, you know, wild, broad dream that we have, which is like the eradication of malaria or like, you know, the reduction of like cases of malaria. So I think it's like having that always like in the back of your mind is like, what are the outcomes and impact that we're actually trying to achieve help you kind of like be more, I I don't know, um, structured about like, how do you actually try to achieve that and make sure like that people along the way are incentivized in the right ways and what have you. Yeah. When you were describing some of these methods and diagramming and stuff, I I had the thought in my head that was very similar to what you just described of 
they seem like they'd be easy to get pulled towards like a completionist or perfectionist streak of I want to make this as good as possible. And to your point, you spend a lot of cycles on it and a lot of time and it isn't actually as effective or you're not getting the best return off of it. Um, how do you know if you're doing this in a workshop and, you know, and you're making some of these fishbone diagrams or icebergs or, you know, whatever else? Like, how do you know when you've hit a spot that is good enough? Like this is, yes, it's simple and it's a little naive, but there's value here. Like versus we just did something really quick in a half hour and it's kind of, it's so raw that it's actually not that useful. Like, how do you know when you've maybe hit that 80, 20 point or, you know, you've gotten something valuable? I do think there's a step of like validating it with other people like within the system. So whether it's your decision makers or, you know, as I mentioned before, like subject matter experts, like in the field. Um, is like making sure like it feels like it captures like the you know entirety of the system um and yeah i don't think it's ever going to be i mean you think about the alternatives to decision making right like a lot of times like decisions are made by some executive based on some assumption they have and i think like when you're gathering like a cross-disciplinary group of people and they're kind of like their goal is to analyze the system then you're likely to get further along than just like how those decisions might have been made like you know typically so i i think it's like maybe kind of like framing it in that way as like these are people who might not have been involved in decision making before and so having their lens on it automatically broadens kind of like what you think about the problem space, like the conclusions you might draw. And the fact that you've done research to kind of like lead up to this spot too, and like your other stakeholders have also done research, um, means that whatever you're doing should also be evidence-based. So I think, um, I think, it's like when you're kind of like reaching that sort of alignment, that is probably the place where it's good enough. Um, and people don't always agree on like where the system begins and ends, but you just kind of have to make decisions. Even if you don't know where the system ends, you might be able to find some sp spots to intervene within anyway. Um, yeah, oftentimes on my education projects, we involve like academic researchers, for example, that let's say like we're working on something that is oriented around assessments and how we can like change incrementally change assessments. Like we'll always pull in um, experts who kind of want to blow up the system. Like who are like, yeah, like assessments don't work the way they are. You can't make incremental change. Like you basically have to start over again. And that starting over is going to take 30 years. And I think like that's a really um, useful viewpoint because I think it helps you draw the lines of where the system is. Um, sometimes those folks are like a little bit, uh, they're not the happiest with like the goals. Like as long as you're explicit about the goals, it's like, you know, like the goal of like this eventual project or collaboration is not that this, we're going to blow up the system, but that their perspective is really valuable in understanding like, well, if you could choose some points of intervention, like where are those points of intervention? Um, oftentimes, like it's been really good to like collaborate with people who have like that sort of like distinct perspective. Um, 
And I can't like stress this enough because I do think like too often, and I, I've been on many design teams, right? Like as a product designer, like we're, it feels like we're just like making decisions in isolation. Like we're just like our designers, the engineers we're working with. Um, we're not actually like involving the outside world enough, except just to like validate and do some like UXR kind of like testing or something. So this is like probably the biggest like mindset shift is like broadening who your stakeholders are and like really pulling them into what you're working on. Um, especially because like so much of what we're working on is so complex. Yeah. Love, love to talk a little bit more about the future state because we kind of started talking with, you know, you've got the design thinking and the systems thinking and they're, they're not opposites, right? From my understanding, Venn diagrams, if you will, there's right. some overlap, they're different but not, not opposites. Um, both have strengths and weaknesses. We've got clouds, we've got clocks. Um, then we talked about, you know, kind of using um, systems thinking to understand the status quo, to understand the world we live in, which presumably has like some problems. Otherwise, we don't need to design anything. Um, so now we, we have a good map of the status quo, whether it's causal loops or an iceberg or fish fishtail, something more simple. How do we move to the future with all this information? You talked a little bit about a theory of change. You know, how do we get everyone on board and use these tools to make change happen? Yeah, there's a so one of my favorite just like really simple tools of like trying to so there's okay, I'll back up for a second. There is creating the theory of change, which I think is like thinking about what are all the points of intervention? What are the kinds of changes that you're going to make that'll have an impact? Um, you know, we oftentimes think of those as solutions, like I encourage people to like step away from like the terminology of solutions because um, Peter Senge, who wrote the fifth discipline wrote yesterday's solutions are today's problems. So, you know, kind of like reinforcing that mindset of like causality and um, yeah, circular, right? And I think like keeping that in mind, you also need to think about like, what are the consequences of what we're going to do that we might not be intending as well as like, you know, like what could go wrong. And one of the simplest ways to kind of like work out those degrees is by doing a futures wheel. So kind of like thinking about the change that you want to make or what is the intervention and then just kind of like playing out in degrees. What are like the second order effects? What are the third order effects? Like what could go wrong? And then you can either like figure out how to create additional interventions to anticipate uh, or just to, to kind of like solve for that. Or you can just use it to kind of anticipate that things like could go wrong in this category or, or we might have to address this down the road. And those could be just like oriented around like how are people incentivized like throughout the system? Like, are there things that could potentially go wrong like along the way? Um, and it's a, it's a really nice exercise and like just kind of like thinking beyond the immediate change you want to see. Um, I've actually done futures wheel exercises with like some of my clients, like just oriented around things like, okay, what's going to happen if you became like an all remote organization? Like what, you know, like there are good things that'll happen. There are bad things that'll happen. Like just even like a really simple directional 
example like that, you can play out many different scenarios. Um, and yeah, I'll, actually, like the iceberg diagram is also like a good analysis for things like that, like how your organization is making decisions. You could be like, okay, right now we're kind of like hybrid. And these are like the things we're seeing, the potential issues with that. And these are kind of like the mental models below that. Um, so yeah, once you kind of like imagine what's going to happen, you can then kind of like think about how to potentially like further like create, you know, ideate on like how you can offset that or how you can further enhance certain things that might have positive effects. Um, and I also write about a little bit about like speculative design in the book, because I do think like there is an opportunity to kind of like, especially kind of like imagine the future in a way that sort of like falls a little bit outside of kind of like a techno optimistic lens. And I think this is born of like me working like, di like directly with a lot of like technology companies. Um, oftentimes it's really hard to see like the side effects when you're working on, for example, emerging technology, you only see the benefits when you're within an organization. And so how can you kind of use, um, you know, speculative design to kind of think about like the potential downsides or like the environments in which your technology will sit in a few years time. Um, I think that is like, I've never seen these two things like combine, like, um, you know, in any sort of like formal literature, whereas like systems thinking and uh, speculative design. But I think it's a really good expression of mm -hmm. systems thinking in a way because it really considers the context of the future. AI feels like a very ripe area to do some speculative design systems thinking. Lots to unpack there, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A question that comes to mind is, you know, something you hear is kind of a best practice within research is, you know, if you're the product designer who came up with a prototype, Ideally, you wouldn't be the one doing the usability testing on it because you're going to have some biases and you might kind of unknowingly lead people because you like the idea, you came up with it. Um, is some of that true here? Like if you're doing this like second and third order effect ideation and like how this might play out over the future, do you need to include people who are a little bit more removed from like the immediacy of, of the work to get like real perspectives of like, you know, a bad actor could do this with it or this might happen or or can the people who are working on it in this type of exercise actually do a pretty good job of like shifting their perspective and, and trying to think about some of the unintended consequences a little further out? Yeah, I'm a bit I'm, I'm just like a big advocate of outside perspective. And maybe that stems from me being a consultant and like going into like organizations and kind of like grokking their organizational culture. And I'm like, okay, I know where I can kind of be like, um, you know, the devil's advocate here, because like, there is kind of like, yeah, culture results in sort of a um, shared way of thinking sometimes. And so uh, I think it's always good to kind of like involve people who are outside of your team in these kinds of exercises, because they will come with a different perspective. Um, you know, I was like, I was talking to somebody the other day, who was who is mentioning how they use chat GPT to, um, you know, kind of like enhance their writing because like English is their second language. And usually it does a pretty good, bad job of it. Um, so they have to like go in and kind of like fix it. But it does, you know, it does the basics, like it fixes all like the basic like grammatical um, errors and things like that. And 
I don't know if you don't automatically like have somebody on your team who kind of thinks in that way about how this tool can be used, you might not be able to like identify like those potential like opportunities or side effects or what have you. So, yeah, I mean, I do think it's like it's important again, like I can't stress enough, like really putting together like multidisciplinary groups of people to do these kinds of exercises and analyses are core to systems thinking. And I think that oftentimes gets forgotten in systems thinking texts. Like, um, you know, they get like kind of wrapped up in like the methods and tools and then you forget like how, who you're supposed to be involving to do this. I think like one of the early kind of thinkers in the sixties and seventies systems thinking is Peter Checklin who wrote about hard systems methodology and soft systems methodology. And he really stresses that like you should be engaging with like a really broad set of stakeholders because otherwise you're doing it wrong. Um, and I think that that holds true today. Like it's not about you going off and create creating causal loops. I think it's like you acting as using your design skills to act as a facilitator rather than just like, you know, a producer of something. Um, and that's where I think like my work has primarily shifted, um, in integrating systems thinking. Yeah. It's also a, a thinking about some of the work you might already be doing through a different lens and what you can get out of it and how it can contribute to your work. I imagine a lot of folks listening have found themselves leading workshops, facilitating, doing a lot of internal stakeholder management, but the output of that might be, you know, this broader systems view of the world that can improve your designs. Uh, in your research. Um, we could, I think, talk about systems thinking for a very, very long time. <laughs> um, but any like parting thoughts for researchers, designers listening and really this kind of engaging with this topic maybe for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I guess I want to emphasize like you can, you can basically start finding ways to integrate sort of systems thinking methods into your practice like right away even if it just means like using some of like the simpler frameworks um i do think it's a mindset that is worth adopting and that's kind of like the starting point is just like you start to kind of see what wasn't visible to you before and just like how things are interconnected um how things will play out like i was reading a article um just this morning about uh, there's like in the U S there's this app that has just been released for asylum seekers at the border. And I was like, Oh my God, they actually did a, there's an app for that, <laughs> for the, <laughs> for this experience. And it's like, just not only is it a horrible like experience, the thing keeps crashing and whatever, but there's all sorts of systems problems with it. Like, people don't have phones when they're seeking asylum. Like it's just, yeah, there's a million ways you can kind of imagine that this is not the silver bullet that they thought it would be. Right. Um, and you start kind of seeing that in just like everyday situations. And I think, um, yeah, it really kind of shifts your mindset, not just about your work, but just how, how you think about circumstances in general. Yeah, I love thinking of it as a mentality of just like, you know, you can zoom out and broaden your perspective a little bit in without getting super sophisticated here. And that's a really good first step. Um, I think we maybe forgot to mention it, but uh, but definitely check the show notes for a uh, promo code on uh, Closing the Loop if you want to check that book out. So um, it's a, a good read. I would encourage everyone to go grab it. 
Yeah, well, also link lots of the other, it mentions lots of great books and thinkers on the subject as well. We can link up with the show notes too. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes, yeah, busy show notes. Check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really educational and interesting and given me a lot to think about. So thank you. For sure. Thank, thank you so much. Hey there, it's me, Aaron. And me, J.H. We are the hosts of Awkward Silences, and today we would love to hear from you, our listeners. So we're running a quick survey to find out what you like about the show, which episodes you like best, which subjects you'd like to hear more about, which stuff you're sick of, and more just about you, the fans that have kept us on the air for the past four years. Filling out the survey is just going to take you a couple of minutes, and despite what we say about surveys almost always sucking, this one's going to be fantastic. So userinterviews.com slash awkward survey, and thanks so much for doing that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. <laughs>